Good morning, everyone. We're going to open the podcast this morning here at the Voice of the Feral with a moment of silence for everybody who is being affected by COVID-19. So we're going to take a moment of silence. And if you know anyone who is suffering, or you think someone is, do the right thing and pick up the phone and get some help. Okay, let's get started. of the feral podcast i am your host ben hannon sit back relax and enjoy the show and there we are new recording on the screen Damn. there it is okay, okay. on record so I want to start with um, I want to start with a little preamble here. And first of all, I'd like to welcome everybody, everybody, to the Voice of the Feral podcast. We have Jason Mitchell on the line today, and I'm going to get into that in a minute. But I want to start with this, Jason. This is what I really wanted to start with before yeah. we before we get too far into you, because there's a lot of great stuff there. I want to go through real quick. I want to go through. Joe Exotic, I want to go through the coronavirus as a decoy for evil shit. And the last one I want to talk about real quickly is uh, where do you think this, where do you think we're going to be by August 1st? So let's do, let's do like five minutes of that. So we'll start with Joe Exotic. Um, Your thoughts, Joe Exotic. You you finish? What's that? You finished the series? I did. Yes, I'm done. Okay. So my basic thoughts are terrible human beings, um, uh, incredible, incredibly entertaining. <laughs> okay. If you, took, if you took Martin Scorsese and five other of the greatest filmmakers in the history of uh, movies and put them in a room and said, you have a week to come up the, with the most wild ass story you could possibly yeah. imagine, they could never come up with the truth of that story of all those three people. I mean, okay. I mean, and so that's why it was fascinating because number one, I didn't know these people existed. I guess I knew in theory, Tiger and, and ownership existed, but it was, uh, it was a study in uh, dysfunction and, and justice in a way, because I mean, at least one of them's in prison. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm going to keep my mouth shut because I want to keep hearing. So then, it, okay, the other part of it I want to know was, did you feel bad? Was there any, is there anyone in the cast, animals included, did you feel bad for anybody in the movie? When, at the end, was there any remorseful thoughts or or or, or feelings of empathy? I felt bad for the cats. You know, like I'm a hunter, so I don't, yeah. but I felt like the cats weren't in their natural environment. And, and Cheryl definitely reacted like strongly to a lot of those scenes, especially as you got further on into the show. Um, so the, the animals for sure. But um, I had a little sympathy for, um, what was the gal? She might identify as a man, honestly. Um, but they cut to her in the chair who had her arm chewed off along the way remember her did you see david spade's interview with that with that woman no oh you've got to watch it it's on youtube she was like a voice of reason throughout the whole thing he's not the only half sane one in the whole place (laughs) i thought he's the same move he says that to her (laughs) yes yeah he tells her that so yeah yeah okay okay yeah i agree with you okay so you did feel bad for the cats. I did. Okay. Because I'd, I mean, I, I mean, you know, they're brutal beasts, but they deserve yeah. to be in the wild. And you felt bad for the gal with the missing hand, or the missing. Well, I didn't feel bad for her, but I had sympathy for her character. I felt like she was 
legitimate and wasn't, she was sane enough to sort of break it all down for us. Those little infomercials that we had where she would have these scenes and she would explain things. Right. I felt like that I, I, I liked her character. I didn't, I didn't I like her. And there might've been another person or two, but like, anyway. I really, I really did too. I agree with you on that altogether. Um, okay, so yeah, uh, wrapping up on Joe Exotic. Yeah, all things that you said, everybody has said it. I'm not going to reiterate. The one thing that I'll leave everybody with is <clears throat> when I was a child, uh, there was a cat that lived down the road from my folks' house in California, and I remember picking it up one day and holding it and walking down the road and it was had its eyes closed and it was purring and stuff and then you know it was one of those things where i was a kid and i probably wasn't even thinking about the cat you know and then the next thing i just remember is this thing was just it had every claw in its body was in my body somewhere and i remember it was just biting my neck was it a wild feral cat or what was it that thing just absolutely screwed me up dude yeah it went completely nuts and so my point is is that i can only imagine if a house cat could take a little kid you know down to the ground and rip him up like that cat i can't even imagine did you see the episode where he gets his leg he gets his leg gaffed open in the he's like in some kind of a pond or something Yes. And that's why he gets around on that. Okay. Cane. I forgot why he was limping, but yeah. That okay. cat and goes in there and like just about cuts down to his femur with it. You know, I mean, it's just insane, dude. The guy is absolutely insane playing around with those damn cats. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, you're probably a little young for this. But, well, for sure. But like the whole, every, the setup seemed like a little bit TV preacher like. Like they had a spellbinding effect on the people that would show up to be a part of things. The Very much so. of it all. He kind of, you know, he he's you know he had his little whatever entertainment factor, and it was just it was anyway. It was weird. Yeah, it is weird. Yeah, and I I'll be honest with you, as weird as it was, and and with all the different angles, and I'm like I said, I'm not gonna get into any of it, but. I just prayed for the guys, everybody. And I was just yeah. like, man, I could have been like that. I could have been a person, not in all of those ways. And I'm not going to get into that. But for me personally, I could have been a single man who was just happy, you know, kind of playing the field and not settling down and not really taking care of anybody or taking, you know, really that much responsibility and I think there's a lot of people who are very susceptible to to becoming that way. And well, think I'm, about think about here's the thing too. Like there's two. I can't I can't all the way judge him is what I'm trying to tell no, you. No, I'm with you. I can't all the way judge him. No, I'm with you because if you think about it, like when Joe started out, he loved cats, and there was a base level. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? There was a base I level just, purity and beauty to that, probably. But as things grew, like then this whole thing. And it, his old, it just got away from him. Like it started to get away. His own appetite for attention, you know. Attention, yes, yes, yes. There's just a lot. There's a lot of variables there. I'm sure there's some childhood stuff for that guy, as well as the woman, as well as you know the feller who was describing that finding himself at the zoo. That was the low point of his life. <clears throat> so he was implying that, you know, this was going to be step up for him yeah right and i and i think that he honestly at the time probably was looking at it and feeling that way and i think that he was ungraciously deceived in a lot of ways you exactly know? that's a great insight that's where my empathy comes from so i think that's a great insight that's a very good point it's just a tough one, man, because, uh, you know, like I said, I don't have any harems or of men or women or anything in between, but that clarification. it would not be above me, you know, if I did not have something higher to try to live for yeah. or have some, some deeper moral value than what would just be naturally inside of me, <clears throat> I don't think that I would be a married person. I think that I would probably 
take advantage of the system, you know, and I'm talking about within my age group. <laughs> okay. But I'm saying like, I just would not be a good person. You yeah. know what I mean? I would I have, we all have some, uh, some involvement in us for sure. Yeah. Cheap, empty relationships. And I, yep. you know, and so my whole point is, is and I cannot watch that movie and then go out about in life and say, Hey, you know what? I'm going to judge everybody on that show. And thank God, you know, I'm nothing like that because that's, I just don't think that's wise. Yeah, I agree. That's my final on Joe Exotic. Uh, let's fast forward coronavirus as a decoy for really evil shit. That's, I've been saying this. I'm going to say it again. I'm going to keep preaching it. I think that the, the hysterical somebody brought this to, I think this was a premeditated situation. I think it was a pre a premeditated planned situation. And I do believe that this, this whole coronavirus situation right now is decoying the United States of America and the other countries of the world for something else. That's what I, and maybe that's completely insane, but. I love the fact that you're, I love the fact that you didn't even half sell that you, you 10% sold that. No, so, dude, I was telling, uh, I was telling you I should. Anyways, okay. So, here, so here's the thing. I'm not saying that um, – I'm not 100% certain you're not telling the truth. But here's my take on it. I think there are there is some science to suggest that there is actually a virus that is very contagious that's being spread. Um, and I think we'll see the numbers play out to be pretty damaging. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess my question is for you, do you feel like the virus was disseminated in an evil fashion or do you think the hysteria around the virus is what is being capitalized on? I will, I will honestly tell you that I don't have enough information. I don't think anybody has enough information. And I think the people that have the correct information as to the true true origins of something like this i don't think that will ever be brought to light (laughs) anytime soon i can i I will agree with you on that we still don't know exactly uh the post 9 11 stuff we'll we'll never know all those stories about what went down in the white house or the streets in new york city when this place is literally turning and i hate the word literally because everybody you know like every woman right now is like you know but it is literally turning back into Rome. We are turning back. This nation, this country, this human race, we're going back to the Roman Empire where, you know, pretty soon, you just watch, man. These presidents are going to start getting whacked, and they're just going to start going one by one, just like they did in Rome, and they'll start doing it to each other, just like they did in Rome. Yeah. And it will all be a plot for the next guy, and a plot for the next guy, and a plot for the next guy. Meanwhile, we're down here. You know, eating. Well, here's the thing that I will say. Okay, if okay, so if we're talking, let's just take global conspiracy for a second. Who knows where I would have been in the Roman Empire, Jason? (laughs) Well, I have a clearer picture now. Okay. Um, I would say this: if you look at the the two party structure in America right now, it's unclear who's going to benefit from it. Okay. okay, because you could argue that Trump's going to end up falling on his face because the economy is going to crash and go into a second Great Depression, and therefore he's going to lose in the fall. Well, you could argue because his numbers are up and we need to cling on to a strong leader that we're going to cling to him because he's our guy. So it's hard to say like who wins, like from at least a domestic standpoint. Now, if it's external global, that's a whole nother question if that's what you're bringing up because. Um, I I would be, I would not be surprised if there are other entities, countries trying to exploit the situation for sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, and it's an interesting it's an interesting topic because I just I don't feel like any of us have really that much true information. Other well, than I think that's fair. It's it's hard to actually understand the core of it. Yeah, other than stripping it down to it's a cold with, you know, what they've said about it, you know, outside of the facts, I don't think we have a lot of information, personally. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. 
Uh, let's see. Your signal froze up on me for a minute. Yeah, you, yours did too. We can. Yeah, we'll just have we'll have freeze frame a little bit. There, you're back. We'll just we'll cut through it. That's the nice thing about this is you can just cut the bleeps out. Well, um, yes. So exactly. Phone is Matt Frazier, by the way. Who? Oh, sorry. Yeah, That's don't tell I, don't tell Matt Frazier I'm using our corporate account tonight. Okay. So for everybody that knows, this is not Matt Frazier. This is Jason. Yeah, this Mitchell. is Jason Mitchell, and Jason. he's uh, a very dear friend. He's also my boss. He, I've worked for him two different companies. Um, really. Super influential in my life. Yeah, it's great. Okay. Okay. Great guy. Okay. Yep. Uh, well, that's good to know. So yeah, I think we'll we'll probably end with that on the on Joe Exotic coronavirus. I want to keep moving on, but I think that's yeah. probably a pretty good place to start with that because um, that's kind of our current deal. And I really can't believe how the Tiger King. I mean, that fella and the and the woman. I think it's Rebecca Chalin or Chalklin or something. They've got to just be. Wait, but now we're talking about the Florida or South Carolina? Well, I'm talking about the writer. I'm talking about the writer. I'm talking about the guy and the woman who wrote wrote the story, Tiger King. Okay. They've got to just be ecstatic right now. Because oh, my that, gosh. That thing dropped right before the, maybe, you know. Maybe they're behind the coronavirus. Shelter in place. Relief. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Release the exactly. Netflix documentary. Virtually every human on earth is watching. That guy probably flew over to Thailand and brought a turtle over there that was just, you know, full of phlegm and mucus and turned that thing loose in some little village over there and got somebody, you know, sick. And then it just. Well, a lot of this, apparently, a lot of these viruses actually come from duck poop, if that's uh, any connection or bridge to our next topic. Really? Yeah, apparently, okay, I'm not a scientist or a biologist, but you humans can't get it directly from duck, but pigs and other animals will then eat um, and pick up, and then when, when, when humans eat uncared for meat, then that's where humans can pick up the virus, apparently. Is that crazy? Okay, so yeah, let's get into that. We're look, we're, okay, so let me stop you right there. Jason Mitchell, guys, we're going to move into now. Thank you for all that, but let's get into that. We're going to talk about duck poop. We're going to talk about uh, waterfowl, and we're going to get into why that has, how and, and why that has so much to do with you, but let's talk about that. So yep. the duck eats, let's start from the eating point. Let's just go from there. Okay. Okay, so the duck is eating. And then it goes to the bathroom. And how, at that point, how does coronavirus then come well, there's from? A, I, apparently, the virus is, is an avian virus, theoretically. I've, okay, oh. this, was ex, this is like fourth hand, not a scientist. Okay. Uh, it, it, can, it, can, it can be connected back to the avian world. So okay. when they poop it out, so if, we, if you ate a duck, you wouldn't necessarily get it, but it passes through like a pig and then, or some other sort of animal. We might pick be tromping around in that same area that the ducks are and then um if a human ate a poorly prepared undercooked piece of pork they might actually pick the virus up so there could okay. be other ways too i've heard it comes from bats i've heard it come from a variety of different sources um but i don't know i just said that because i knew that you and i both like ducks so oh yeah, we do. Yes, we have a both have a good affinity for ducks. So yeah, that's a good thing. And I do, I'm sure because of the rest of the research on most of these viruses and bacterias and you know, um, you get into my years in the cattle industry, everybody's wor worried about uh, you know, TB, bovine tuberculosis, yeah. um, you know, you got a lot of pink eye stuff in that world. Um, a lot of pneumonia. A lot of um, some of those pneumonia cases, if they get into, um, you know, they'll get like diphtheria in their lungs and stuff. And it's 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 a situation where, in my opinion, I think animals at that point should be put down. Because um, it, because it's too dangerous to allow them to pass that on or whatever. It's dangerous for them to pass it on. It's dangerous for them to. Um, they're not safe to be around. Uh, they know that they're, you know a few clicks away from death so they usually <laughs> yeah so they're yeah they're knee jerky uh, 
I'm being totally serious with you, man. I watched a guy one time. We had a, we had a steer that he had. So, um, a hundred and, you know, to go like for a cow to have a hundred and four or a hundred and five temperature, that's, that's pretty warm. That's getting pretty warm. And then, and then as you would climb up into more of a, um, if you get high up onto the 105, 106 area and you start pushing the sevens and the eights, that's like brain damage heat. So we had a steer that was somewhere in that zone and he, um, we had tried to get him up to where we would administer medicine. Several times we had tried with horses. We had tried with a, with a four wheeler and eventually we ended up taking, he was so um, hooky. We ended up just taking a loader down but this kid went down there and he was trying to help and he was trying to show off and the steer hooked him oh, and hit him like that and ran him up into a, a five strand barbed wire fence. So you got all five strands running that way. And he just smashed in his whole body, just smashed up into those barbs. And that steer just, I mean, just wailed on him and he finally was able to crawl underneath, but you know, he looked like a, oh, I was going to say, did he live? He lived through it. Oh yeah, he lived. Yeah, he was. Oh, so my point is, is that not only are they dangerous for the for themselves, they're dangerous for the people that work with them. For sure. But then they're dangerous to go out and be consumed into the public. You know, you wouldn't want. I don't want to eat that. No, no. So I think that that there's got to be a failure somewhere in in the, you know, in the system of what's okay and what's not. Yeah, I think. Well, and let's be honest, there are other countries who do not have the USDA. Oh, know, yeah. Looking oh, yeah. at things super closely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's very true. They don't spend a lot of time there. So while we're on the subject of animals and animal welfare, welfare, and why don't we roll down to, let's get into you. So you are currently in Dallas, Texas. I'm actually in Temple, Texas, which is a, it's a, yeah, I, I spent 13 years in Dallas, so that was a good guess. Okay. Uh, but I'm in Temple, Texas now. It's uh, an hour north of Austin. Okay. Um, and like a half hour south of Waco. Okay. So okay. right on 35. If you drive north on 35, you go to Waco, then Dallas, and then south on 35, you go to Austin. Okay. Uh, I've been to, let's see, I've been to Austin. I've been to the Panhandle. Yeah. came Austin, and then we went north up to Groom, and then, okay. and we were just like out in Groom, and it was it was beautiful. <clears throat> I had a great time. So that's all I know about Texas. So you're down there, you're in Temple, yeah. And the rap sheet on you is just insane, dude. You have done so much incredible stuff, and I'm talking about a good place. I used to be uncomfortable by it. No, you shouldn't be. I mean, you've got, so you got California State, uh, Bachelor of Science, Business Administration, 1986. You graduated from Talbot. Yeah. Uh, theology, uh, Master of Divinity, 1993. I mean, the list is long. I, I don't want to bore you too much, but uh, I mean. No, I'm enjoying every minute, but let's not bore the listeners. <laughs> yeah, no, it's good. I mean, you founded uh, the River the River Hoop Fest. Uh, that you know you got you're doing stuff in russia um you got big brothers and sisters of dallas i mean the list is long you guys can go and and check out um jason um so but you're in the you're in the nonprofit business currently yeah. Yeah. you're doing nonprofit. um you're doing yeah. nonprofit athletics well a little bit of that yeah so what we do our company is um which i've been doing probably for 15 years is we help nonprofits do marketing and fundraising essentially. Okay. So we're an okay. agency. Um, a lot of times uh, nonprofits don't have the particular expertise to pull certain things off. They'll hire a group like us uh, to do projects or to do longer term things. So a lot of that has to do with creative efforts. Like we're working with the University of Louisiana Lafayette right now and we're gonna help them um, uh, drive renewal and you know donors for their annual, their annual fund. Uh, really? We also work with, we work with, you know, smaller groups like Happy Hill Farm, which is kind of a boarding school uh, out near Fort Worth, you know, Christian boarding school. So anything in, in between, university, small Christian organization, everything in between. So. Wow. 
That's really interesting. And so you guys are just trying to, you offer a service to a few different niche markets, basically. Is yeah. What you're saying. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> so you're servicing those different groups. Yep. With your agency. Yeah. And so, you know, we've been doing it for a while. So, you know, people understand kind of what we can be helpful in and they'll hire us to do projects. Yeah. People don't under raising money is not easy man. and marketing unless you are just one of those people that likes to be in front of a camera and you like taking pictures of yourself you know marketing is not easy i don't think for everyone so and a lot of times so you know the science of marketing is interesting because it's it's aberrant right it's manipulative Mm -hmm. but but it works right so if you're you know, you know, getting someone's attention because they have a nice pair of boots, you know, you've seen advertisement for boots or something that you like, and you're like, oh, man, those are nice boots, you know. Um, so there's a, the good companies will get you intrigued to shop for them and potentially buy. Well, in the nonprofit world, what nonprofits are good at doing is doing the mission, like actually helping people. What they're generally not good at doing is telling their story and getting people to donate. Like, it's okay. Boiling their story down into a commercial and going, give me a hundred bucks, man. We're feeding kids or we're schooling yeah. kids or we're helping students, you know? So yeah. I think that's where we come in and we're good at helping people frame that and tell it, you know, creative videos, doing online email communication, things like that. Okay. 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 Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I just, I've always seen you, you know, growing up with you around my family, you were always just, um, you're always in some kind of leadership thing. And it seemed like you just had a real good flow. You didn't really, I didn't see you have a lot of interruptions with, with, with the people that you kind of shuffled with. It just seemed like you were always um, not out domineering people or trying to be uh, not a dictatorship, but, and so I always, um, I don't know. I just, it kind of stuck out to me that you had a pretty nice way of dealing with stuff. Well, I, I really appreciate it. That's a super big compliment to me. And I, it's, I think it's insightful too, because one of the things now when you get older and you look back yeah. at your life, I, I re, I'm super curious about people and I'm interested in people like you are. Um, and, you know, growing up in my dad's business that we'll get into, like the duck call business, mm-hmm. I would talk to people who were plumbers cowboys mm-hmm. contractors okay and attorneys and doctors so like growing okay. up like i learned to talk to almost any kind of person that existed you know what i mean okay. yeah and, i do um, yeah, i do and so it was just part of i think it's partly maybe who i am um but also partly my how it, the environment that i grew up in you know okay yeah okay so let's get into that you were you born in california I was. I was born in Marin County, California, Marin General Hospital, which is kind of in San Rafael. Okay. Which is in the Bay Area, north of the north of the Golden Gate. Wow. Okay. Okay. And then you guys lived where? What did your dad do down there? So when, uh, you know, uh, we lived in a little community called Black Point, which is really part of Novato. Novato is right where you turn right to go to the wine country. So if you drive north on 101 and you want to go to Napa, you turn right at Nevada. No, people don't really know where Nevada is. In fact, if you Google um, Urban Dictionary for Nevada, the answers are exactly as I experienced growing up. That people say, oh, you're from Nevada. Oh, where in Nevada? No, Nevada. <laughs> Literally, that happened. So um, my dad was a, he was a, he was a trained artist. So he went to art school and he was a commercial artist in the city for many, many years. Really? Um, so yeah, he was a, you know, he worked with wood, he carved decoys, you know, he was just an artist. That's what he was. Wow. Okay. Um, so pre doing the duck all thing, he was driving into the city and living a little bit of the madman life, you know, laying out right. soup can labels and like things like that. Wow. Okay. So back in the day, previous to computers, like they were doing that all with like little sticky pieces of, Thing and like laying out a, a a commercial or a soup label can or whatever like then they print that so wow so he was involved in in what the public saw at that time yeah yeah what the I mean, you know as an artist yeah you're either exactly 
super wow. detailed, super creative, so, super inventive. So you got to see what real marketing looked like from a very early age. Yep. And you understood the concept of it because your dad was involved in something where he's getting paid to help other people make money. Yeah. And which is funny too, because I, I and you know, cause I, yeah. And he, he started his career out kind of in agency life and I've spent a good portion of my life in agency life, but he wanted to get the hell out. Right. Like he, he was a cog, you know, he was, yeah. he was a creative guy. He wanted to do the creation rather than putting the little things on the piece of paper that designed the soup label, you know, um, it was, a, it was way underutilized. I mean, he was certainly good at it and did well at it, but you know, when he had the chance to bounce out, um, I can't speak for him, but that's my observation. He was like, yeah, you know, yeah. And so you, and you grew up with both parents, uh, mom. Yeah. My mom was a school nurse. She spent, okay. you know, she raised us, um, until we got to school, she stayed home with us until we were old enough to sort of fend for ourselves. It was a little different in the seventies, you know. But like then she she was a school nurse, which worked well. So she um, she was a hospital nurse and school nurse, so she could be home when we were home. But she was running around doing school nurse stuff in the, you know the school districts around where we were. Wow. Okay. So then you guys, um, once you got through high school, then um, how did the whole? I mean. How did the whole Iverson thing start? Okay. Where did that come into the play? I mean, so, in the yeah, my dad's uh, always a hunter, you know, and a craftsman. He carved decoys. He built his own duck boat but he, that he finished when I turned 13 or whatever. And he really? started it. I mean, he literally started it the year I was born and then finished okay, it so, 13. Hold on. Let me, let me back you up right there. So you guys are going duck hunting at what age i mean duck when does this all happen for you uh well yeah, any kind of hunting probably started as early as seven my dad was probably most passionate about deer hunting so we had a family friends who had a wonderful still have a wonderful property up in mendocino right on the border of mendocino and humboldt county and really deep into a canyon they had a you know a place to go and we grew up there from the age seven on just Trout fishing in the streams and deer hunting and staying away from rattlesnakes. It was just, really? yeah, some of my greatest memories exist on that place. Don Lenny, who was my, my, I'll tell you that story real quick. My mom and Monica went to college together. Okay. They were buddies in nursing school. They said, okay. oh, my, my fiance is a deer hunter. Oh, my husband's a deer hunter. And then Don and my dad became friends. And okay. then, for all of our lives, we went up to this property and hung out and camped and did deer hunting and these trips together. So it was awesome. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. So you guys, that was just something you grew up doing. Yeah. I just super hunting was a part of it. Exactly. Okay. And then where, so you're, you're going to graduate high school and then what happens? Where do you go from there? Uh, I went to, I ended up at uh, community college for a while, thought I was going to be a, uh, you know, a wildlife biologist and then, and, and then saw like three years of chemistry ahead of me and said, eh, I'm going to do something else. And I ended up um, going to, you know, Cal State Sacramento. Okay. I'm studying business. Yeah. Okay. So you did business and then at what point does Iverson show up? Because you're doing other stuff, right? You got your own deal going on. You're making money. Were you married by then? Well, so let me tell you the story of how my dad got Iverson because okay. it's kind of a funny story. So when I right. when I was 12, Christmas is 75. Okay. I have, I've got it in my head that I want to get my dad a duck call for Christmas. Okay. So I don't know the circumstances. You know, when you're 12, if you're, if mom's putting that idea in my head or whatever, but anyway, I'm in an Abergrammian Fitch in San Francisco, California, and we select a duck call to buy my dad. I'm sure I didn't pay full price. I'm sure my mom helped me. I threw some paper out money into it or whatever. Okay. Hold on a second. I want to, I want to stop you right there. Okay. You're buying, <clears throat> you're buying a duck call in an Abergrammian Fitch store. Yeah, so it, back in the day, they were an outdoor hunting supply gun store. It was not teen clothing. Okay. So that's what's crazy. In fact, one of the Mr. Iverson, his one of his first dealers was an Abercrombie and Fitch in New York City. So what's crazy is I end up going into this store. Okay. In San Francisco, buying my dad a Rosewood Iverson duck call for Christmas. I hand it to him. He opens it. He's thrilled. My dad gets obsessed with it. 
spends the next month on his lathe trying to make another duck call like he's trying to mimic it kind of like mike bulky like you know how okay. mike used to right. duck call. he'll take something and invent something better with it right and um so at some point my dad got stuck he couldn't he had a few questions like he couldn't get passed on how to make it sound right or i don't, I don't know so he picks up the phone okay. and calls Elmer Iverson, who was in San Mateo, California, the South Bay. And he says, hey, I got a few questions. They start talking, my dad's super, super cordial. And the guy says, well, I've just decided to retire and I'm interested in selling the business. And May of 76, so six months after I handed him that thing for Christmas, he bought the company. Really? Yes. So, okay. So Abercrombie and Fitch, and in, in six months, you guys own a duck call company called so He buys the company, and then he, do, he, moon, he moonlights at both for a while. So he's driving into the city doing the, doing the you know, the, the, the art, you know, the, the commercial okay. art stuff. And we're then the right on weekends, we're doing the duck calls. And then at some point, it just took over completely. So when I was growing up, I grew okay. up, I quit my paper route and I went into the shop and you know, the rest of my teen years were just grinding out in the wood shop, making duck calls. Wow. Oh, okay. So you were making calls as a teenager. Yes. Wow. After school every day. Yes. And I was, I, you know, it's, and, and looking back on it, you know, it was, it was one of the most profound impacts on my life. You know, like I, I cherish the fact that I had that experience. It's influenced everything. But at the time I was like, Oh, my buddies are washing dishes down at the Alvarado Inn and, you know, playing grab ass. I want to do that. You know, I felt like I was missing out on everything, but really I wasn't, I was getting everything. Okay. Know? Yeah. Now I do. I do understand that. How interesting. Okay. So then you take off, you go do business stuff. And then, and then um, by the time that we kind of show up in the picture, Iverson is now like a big deal. Everybody. Yeah, so my dad, my dad really took Iverson to another level. And, yeah. it, you know, he was able to, you know, get it into National Exposure, Cabela's Magazines, all the yeah. good ones, you know. That's right. Sold some internationally. And, you know, he raised raised our family on that, you know. He didn't get rich. He was, you know, not the greatest businessman, but he was very good. He's legendary on the West Coast. And I still get emails to this day that a grandson will say, hey, my dad handed me this call. It was his dad's. Can you tune it? Or it's broken. Wow. Can you fix it? It's super important to me. Yeah. I get dozens of those emails a year just really like, and it because you know there's something about a handmade something that people you know it's important to them so it is um and it's so, not manufacturable yeah it's not, it's not mass manufactured it's not a synthetic material it's it's there's there's a hand there's hand carving hand turning hand tuning um, so he he ended up taking the business to a different level in that sense and um yeah it was it was good so it definitely influenced, I mean, there was a part of me when I went to college, I thought, you know, hey, I'd go into business with my dad. And I'm sure he would have, would have appreciated that. But I didn't end up going into yeah. business with my dad long term, although I've never really left. The, I still do stuff, you know. You like, still do stuff. Yeah. yeah and like I'm still sending leads to people and answering emails. <laughs> yeah. No, I get that. No, <laughs> you know? So, okay. So you started out with deer hunting. I still want to stick around because I love the idea of this. So you're down. This is like. Central California coast, yep. you're, you're hunting, you're hunting uh, what, what they call, and I'm probably going to piss some people off. They call those things blacktails down there. That's and correct. To me, to me, they look like a mule deer yep. with a black tail. <laughs> but yeah. whatever. They're, they, are, they are considered Colombian blacktails. So you're hunting Colombian blacktail deer. Uh, you got California quail. Uh, well, we have we did dove hunting, dove hunting, checker, yeah, a lot of dove. Um, and, and of course, my we hunted right there on San Pablo Bay, which is an extension of San Francisco Bay for ducks. So I grew up going in my dad's boat, and we would hunt bluebills and cans and pintail and mallards and teal, whatever would fly out there. Okay, so you guys had a boat, you would go out, and you had a spot like in the bay or something, and you, yeah, you and it, it was glorious. I mean, it's it, hunting on the bay is not for everybody because it's easy and cold and wet um, and there's tides and you can get stuck on the mud, but it's part of the glory, right? You got to figure out, okay, which way is the wind blowing? I got to find the lee shore. I got to figure out what time I can get into the tulies to hunt and then I got to get out. And so there's all these little dynamics you have to work with to choose your spot. Am I going to go south? Am I going to go north? It's, 
it, so there's like there's like a lot of planning and things that go into it. And then there's usually a few other people you got to beat to your spot, but not. It wasn't a ton of competition. It wasn't like a. It wasn't like ridge field hunting that we used to do. You know, where right. you have to go to an assigned blind and there's 300 people around you. Right. You know. Right. Okay. So it was you're hunting public land, and then, okay, and then how did you? how did you kind of transpose out of doing the duck hunting thing? Then you started getting into calling and then you end up going and competing and actually winning. How walk me through where all that. Came. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, so I started making calls when I was, I guess, 12 and turning 13. And then I just started learning to call and then just being around some incredible callers, you know, like, and I'm, I'm, I'm a mimic. I mimic pretty well I can make I can make fun of people behind their backs by mimicking them too but I don't do that very well I'm not good enough to be a comedian but like as a little child funny guy I I did that a lot so in my duck calling I would try to mimic people so like a good friend of my dad's Rich Radagon a wonderful guy just passed away not too long ago he would show up to my dad's booth you know wherever he was selling calls at say one of the shows the ISC shows international sportsman's exposition and he would call and he'd be doing all this funny stuff that I'd never heard of and then I would mimic him so the next six months I'd try to sound like that guy and then the, oh, next, guy, okay. so then the next guy would come along and he'd make these other sounds that sounded really ducky and then I'd mimic, mimic him so then I, I was like sounded like Rich and then David Jane and then and so I started becoming like so if you start learning a language or playing guitar when you're 40, like my dad, it's harder. But if you're doing it at 13, like you can get really good because you can just spend lots and lots and lots of time doing it. Um, and then like in the mid eighties, my dad got approached because some of the guys in California started getting the bug to do competitive calling. This guy, Wayne Bucks, who makes okay. his own call now, but he started bugging my dad, hey, I need a competition call. And so my dad basically created a new competition call. What, what, what was his name, Wayne? Wayne Betts. Wayne Bett? Yeah, B-E-T-T-S, like Dickie Betts of the Allman Brothers. Yes. Except Wayne. Okay. He, was he the hot guy in California no, at the time? No, he was just kind of the first really super obsessive guy that showed up and would drive to the shop twice a week and, and bug my dad to get this call to sound a certain way. Because he was, really? he, yes, like, and okay. really, it, but what was good about it is, is a guy like him, he really drove my dad to new places with the calls. Okay. It was okay. really good for us and good for him. So, so we, we need to give some respect to Wayne then is what you're absolutely. saying. Absolutely. Shout out to Wayne. I know <laughs> yeah, shout out to this thing. Yeah. yeah. Right. So then it was like, you know, then there was a whole slew of other guys, right? So John Tanishin, and then they're competing and then they're like, oh, I can get in the junior competition and then I can get into these other competitions. So by the time I was in high school and college, I was pretty good. I was okay. very good. You know, okay. Yeah. And I was competing against Wayne and, and, and this guy David Jane, who was like one of the best callers ever. Like he could really? could make an Iverson sound so lucky and so different. And really? um, and I like he was awesome. Wow. And um so I Yeah, would, I want I want to make a point on that real quick. Could I make one quick yeah. to all the duck all you guys that call ducks and geese out there, and, and I wanna say this really with a lot of respect, but I wanna make a point. A guy can get really good at a couple calls and and can be a good caller, a very good caller with those calls that he is good with. And he can go somewhere else and try something or be put on the spot somewhere calling with folks and maybe not sound as good or feel as comfortable with the call. That doesn't necessarily mean that he's a bad caller. Right. Do you, you know, so... Uh, I just want to throw that out there because um, some of the guys that I've talked to in the last few years, they have kind of a complex about calling. And I want to tell everybody, there's no other way to get good at calling ducks than sitting out in nature. I don't care if you're hunting or just outside. Go get your duck call out and sit down and listen to ducks quack, listen to teal, listen to pintail, listen yeah, to which. There's listen absolutely right. And don't let people tell you if you're good or not good at calling ducks. Just go try to sound like a duck. Well, I'll tell you, that's a really, that's a huge. Their freaking mouth. <laughs> huge, yes. You're absolutely right. I, 
and that's not about me. I feel bad for the kids that are coming up now because it's they're this it's so competitive they won't even try calling. Well, and like there's a difference to your point. There's a difference between being being really good at a routine like Wayne. No, no disrespect at all. He wanted to win a world champion duck hunting contest, and he became maniacal about competing. David Jane was a duck hunter, like okay. he knew how to call ducks, and then okay. he joined the competition thing. So like he was coming from really good mallard caller and i'm sure wayne did a lot of hunting himself too but like wayne you know david brought his own sound and to your point like when i was a kid my dad had this recording he probably bought bought these different recordings of guys calling ducks and i remember there was was like this i just remember the guys sounded like they were very much from the south like tennessee or and they were like, man, listen to them ducks. Like, and then they 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 had some wild, you know, mallard sounds. Like, listen to that hand mallard. And they ran, 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 ran. And like, I would listen to that and try to mimic that sound. Like, there really is nothing to your point better than actually listening to live ducks because they have a certain cadence to them. You have to. It's just yeah. like shooting horses. It's no different. Exactly. If you grow- you grow up shoeing horses from one guy who shoes horses this one way and he teaches you that one way or she or whatever, or whatever. And then you go out and you realize, man, there's all this other stuff going on out here. And, and actually horses and ducks, they don't even sound anything like this so <laughs> The whole thing because I don't even sound like a freaking duck. I was sounding like some guy who thought he sounded like a duck. Yep. yep. And you got to start all over again. So, yep. Yeah. Good. Another good point. And to the folks listening who want to be, you know, involved in calling and who do call and who have questions about this stuff, go listen to ducks. Yeah. That's what I can tell you. Seven go notes, five and seven notes. Okay. Yeah. And you can't go wrong with single good quacks. You can't go wrong no, with, right. with all you feeding chuckles and you can't go wrong that's with. The, that's the other thing too. Like easy five cadence. If you sick. go to a pond, the 80% of what you'll hear is. Like busy, busy, happy sounds. That's all they do. Yeah. Yeah. Those. Oh, yeah. Well, I could go on about that, but okay. That's a really good point. So you're, you're starting to call, you're starting to go and you guys, you've got one guy who's really out in the field, which I think it's so stupid. They call it meat, a meat competition. They should what they should have done in my opinion is they should have called it what it is, which is you have calling, competition, duck, calling and duck hunting, you know, duck hunting calling. Yes. Like we're calling to hunt and we're calling to compete. Yes this weird thing about meat and all this other stuff. And I just think it's, I think it's embarrassing because it makes us feel like we have a complex about hunting ducks. It's like we have to be tough. And, and, and I just, well, wish and it, it, it points out the fact that it's, it's also weird that the competition calling is so different than what you would do in the field. It is strange. I, I don't know where, like, I understand it though. What it needs to be spoke about as is that when you take duck calling out of that context and you take it away from the pond and the field, now what you're really doing is you're just competing on a musical instrument. That's really yeah, no. It it's a huge point because it, that's, that's exactly that what it is at the competition because you have to do a routine. It has to be clean. You have to hit some notes. Yeah. You know, there, there is not a duck on this planet. I don't care what country who will ever sound anywhere near to those ranges. Never heard a 30 note hail call. <laughs> it's just not, it's just not uh, <laughs> a- avianly possible. Would that be the right way to say that? Okay. Yeah. So, uh, and the one that does has the coronavirus. Just to yeah, there you go. And that would be the only one. Yeah. It's going to have three web feet and uh, three eyes. Yeah. Who knows? I actually have a pretty wild story on that that I would like to tell real quick. One time, my uncle and my dad and my cousin and I were in Moses Lake, Washington area, hunting pretty far out into the scab land. And we had come across a mallard drake that had been, I think it, I think it was hawk struck. Uh, A hawk had had come through and you could see it had hit it across the head, like with the talon. Yep tell it just tipped off the and so this thing was literally had like 
half of its head was gone. Wow, it's probably and ducked it or something, and yeah. And it was totally alive. So wow. it's walking around out here. It can't fly, but it's totally walking around. Just mortally wounded. Yeah, bleeding all over the place, just quacking. And and it was just it was not mentally right. So we ended up putting it, you know, putting it out of its its misery. But um really a good thing for me to see that that stuff happens in nature. Exactly. And, uh, the idea that, you know, everybody's out there petting the wolf puppies and stuff, that's not <laughs> animals are brutal, man. Not, They're brutal uh, it's not how it works out there. You know, if we hadn't have found that duck, that thing would have wandered around. He could have been hit several more times and still, you know, who knows? So they I do know this. I have seen ducks die many slow, long deaths from uh from predators, you know, from um I've seen calves that were pulled out of the mother cow while they were being born. Um, there's a lot of things in nature that are just, they're just there. And there, there isn't anything, they're wired into earth. They're just wired into the system and there's no way around it. Yeah. It's almost like a law, you know, it's very yeah. interesting. So they got I yeah, and when I shoot something and I and I kill it and I take the meat home, you know, and I cut the breast meat out of those ducks and and if we're going to do the legs or whatever. When I when I can get it to where we can vacuum it up and put it in the freezer, um that's just a very it's a very rewarding feeling. It's uh, it's you know. uh it's more natural. Yeah, and the stuff is so good, you know. Well, mallard mallard meat, oh. Teal, so great pintail. There's a reason they sell it in high-end restaurants, you know. That's right. Yeah, you're not going to find that stuff at Walmart. You know, it's just not going to happen. Mallards. <laughs> They're next to the biscuit. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about where did you go from? You're doing the duck call thing. You got the the Mister Meat Hunter. You got the competition guy. And then let's get. We kind of drifted off. Where at some point you end up getting into the big into the bigs. You just dropped out there, brother. Say that again. I lost you. Hmm. Me. Let's. Uh. Hey. I'll, let's go. Let's get out and go back in. Hold on a second. Oh, there you are. There, there you are. we are. Are we back? Yeah, I missed the I missed the tail end of your question. Sorry. Yeah, no, it's fine. My 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 deal is uh you got tired, went to sleep. No, it said that the internet connection was unstable. So let me take a look here and see. I gotta make sure that I got the right stuff. I'm not real, I'm still learning this program, so uh yeah, I think we're okay now. And I think it's switching back and forth. Do you have a yellow? Do you have a yellow square that goes back and forth? No. And back and forth. No. No. What does yours look like? Like the screen. It yeah. Like you and me talking. And does yours say Matt Frazier? It does. I. <laughs> we can no, blur that out on the video. No, I don't care about that. That's fine. I, you can leave it on. I want to make sure that you're seeing the same thing that I am. Yeah, no, but I'm not. I know my picture of you is great. Okay, okay, I have a good picture of you too. I'm just trying to figure out why this yellow, uh, this thing bounces back and forth. So I was just trying to figure that Pong out. Long game. I don't know. I Taking over the computer. No, it's got to be. I think it records, and then I think it records this side. Oh, oh, interesting. I don't and know. Like a podcast thing, and then it goes back over here. Gotcha. Gotcha. Switch, switch. You know how like they have TV shots have intermittent. If you yep. had four, I think it would be clicking between the four. Makes sense. Yep. Okay. Yep. So, uh, how did you go from just getting to where you started getting really good? And I know that you don't like talking about this, but I want to know because you you did some pretty cool stuff with duck calling. How did you? Where did it take off? I mean, what was your break? So I probably did, you know, all kinds of, my dad started part of the business in California Waterfowl Association. They would have these, these waterfowl days and they'd, they'd have associated uh, duck calling contests. Okay. And so my dad began hosting some. And so I got sort of drug into competing because my dad was a part of it. 
Okay. Um, and then there was, there was just a different events that popped up and we would, I would compete in them. So I started doing them over and over and I'd get a third and I'd get a second. And then the way that the, the world duck calling championship works is you have to win a state duck calling contest to qualify to go to the world duck calling contest. So you have to, you have to win a qualified regional contest to go to the world duck calling contest. So I've gone back twice. So the, the fight was to get to a state, to win the state contest or to win a regional one. So you, you end up competing in anything you could to get practice, but the okay. real ones you tried to win would be a state. So I think like in, I want to say 1987, um, <clears throat> Wayne, you know, a number of us on Iverson's qualified, um, Wayne Betts, John Tanishin, the guy that I mentioned before, um, uh, David Jane, myself, and then John's younger brother. I can't remember his name, darn it. So there was like five of us in the World Duck Calling Contest, one in the junior division with Iversons. And like, we were the only ones there with Iversons. We were the only ones there with Wood Calls. Wow. Yeah. Like, and we all competed. Lost your, lost your volume there again. What'd you say, brother? Frozen. Can you hear me? Are you back? You're back. We must have some, must be some weather going on out here. Let me check. Yeah, the wind's blowing a little bit, but it's not that bad. I don't know what's going on. We'll figure it out. It's no big deal. So where was this competition at? So I, well, I mean, the world duck calling contest. Yeah. So that one takes place in Stuttgart, Arkansas, and it has forever. So you qualified for the world then? Yeah, in 1987. The whole, the whole Iverson team did? Yeah, like a bunch of us, exactly. So we all wow. competed. Okay. I, got, I bounced out after round one. I think okay. all of us bounced out after round one or round two, like John and Wayne and myself. But David J made it to round one, two, and three, and he won. He wow. won the point. So in 1987, the cool part about that is the year that I competed back there with all those guys, my dad was back there. That was the last year a wood call won a world duck calling championship, and it was an Iverson. It was David Jane. Okay. I'm pretty sure that no one since then has blown on a wood call. Wouldn't it be cool to bring it back? Yes, it would. You know, like if you could, I don't know if they'd even allow you to do it now, but it'd be pretty cool. You couldn't hit the highs, I don't think. Yeah, you, you know? can't. You, the, the acrylic have that, that ring that you can't quite achieve in, in the no. wood. But no. So the, that sort of carries the day. Wow. So what was that like being in Stuttgart? I mean, what's that? It was intimidating. It was intimidating because. Uh, How does it work? Like you get there on Monday and then. Yeah, I mean, you get, it's, it's actually the week of Thanksgiving. So you kind of go in on a Wednesday and you end okay. up having Thanksgiving on the road. And then I think the competition starts Friday, Saturday. It's like a whole okay. duck fest. It's a cool event. Like okay. all duck hunters, okay. the, the, the rich and tone guys. They're okay. all right there and they're involved. And there's all okay. kinds of duck call makers that come out of there. Max Prairie Wings is there, you know. Um, wow, okay. So it's, it's, back then it was a smaller event. Now it's huge. But you, okay. the, the, they have a stage on Main Street and you get up on stage and people crowd around and you got the judges behind you hidden and you're blowing over a bunch of people doing your routine on a microphone with the light coming on when you go and turn it off when you need to stop. And, you know, it's, it's intimidating because every caller that goes there, there's just micro things that make a difference between number 27 and the winner. Yeah, it is. Yeah, minuscule. I mean, I felt very good about how good of a duck caller I was until I got there. And then I was like, ain't no way I'm going to win this thing. I mean, it takes, uh, yeah, like, I mean, just, it, it felt like, it felt like, I would have to go for 10 straight years potentially to get wow. a chance. And I think that's what Wayne Betts ended up doing. He just kept competing and competing and he eventually won it. Like in David Jane, he wins it the first year he goes back, you know, and I'm like, you know what wow. I mean? Like, wow. So part of me was like, I sort of got to a point and I'm like, okay, I'm good. And I was out of college at that point. I was just like, you know, I don't know. You know, I was ready to move on. But I think I went one more time, like in 1991. 
um, to compete, but same thing. I bounced out. I think, you know, bounced out early, but it was yeah, a good experience. It was awesome. You made it there. That's incredible. Yeah, it's exactly. Yeah. I feel very proud about that. How do you, um, yeah, that would just be so intimidating to go and take on all of the, because it's like a festival, right? Yeah. The world. So, and for people listening, we're talking about Stugart. So we're talking about Stugart, Arkansas, the, and it's, it's the world champion duck calling competition. Yeah, it seems like it's in the middle of nowhere and that's where it's. Right. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's from what I know and what I've heard, I've never been there, but it's big timber flooded timber yep. country. And we got, we got really lucky. We had a connection and we hunted the timber and had. Is it incredible? It, it was ridiculous. It was awesome. Really? Yeah. Really? Did they really come in like that? Just dropping just straight yes. down those yes. canopy? Gosh, yeah. I've always wanted to do that. Yeah. It's like one, it's the one type of duck hunting that I've never well, actually. Well, when the guy did. dropped us off too, like we didn't, like it was very mysterious. Like he was a friend of a friend. So he, we're on his boat and he goes, okay, you guys can get out here. I mean, we're like, oh, you know, we didn't know how deep it was. Oh yeah, you can stand, just stand by that tree right there. And then sure enough, then he drops a couple guys off in different places and there was no one close to us, but we were just, it was just like, really? Yeah. It was yeah. Like, I mean, it wasn't the great, I mean, we had everything. We didn't have pure mallards that day, but there were a lot of mallards. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. When you're in the zone, man, you're in the zone. And when you're not, it's a, it's a cold, hurtful day to sit there and watch them land 500 yards down. Yeah. And just pour in there. They look like a, like a mass of locusts. Yeah, know? exactly. And there's nothing you can do to get them over the, your side. It's yeah. just not going to happen. I mean, honestly, that was the highlight. I mean, I loved, I loved competing and trying to win and everything, but that, yeah. those, that hunt, a couple hunts I did down there, it's like, wow. those are unforgettable. Okay. So tell me, you got to, okay. So you get up, obviously it's early and we'll go through this for people who don't hunt ducks. Duck hunting is you're trying to figure out how to communicate to flying ducks um, and flying geese in some cases waterfowl you're trying to decoy them down into your area to get them close enough into gun range so that you can put some meat in your freezer because it's very good meat so when we're talking about flooded timber you guys are hunting in in essentially a flooded depth of what four to six yeah, I'm going to say it was three to four feet. Where four we were. Okay, so you're knee level water. You're walking through yeah. the timber now decoys, and then let's just go from there. Do you boat in? Do you guys leave early? In that particular like, case, yeah. You know, they had a little club. They had a house. It was okay. doubled as a clubhouse, but it was a nice house. Okay. Um, and then um, they, uh, we picked up a boat on the shore and just, you know, motored into the marsh, and then he just dropped people off wherever. I mean, he, I mean, he probably had it figured out. You know, the birds sure. are here. I mean, for sure. us, it was dark, and we're like, I'm like, where did he just drop us? You know? So he let you out. In that and case, yeah. He let my dad and I out because there was probably, I guess, probably a, you know, a number of hunters, and he okay. was kind of the guy in charge. So he kind of drove us around, drove people around, and um, he just dropped. We didn't. He, I think, he ended up hunting somewhere near us, but not with us. Okay, but so, did you guys set your own decoys up? Well, I think there might have we. I think we threw out like a half a dozen decoys. Like it was just like. Okay, and yeah. then and you're standing. You're standing in the flooded timber. Yeah, right up tree. Yeah, and then what what happens from there? Well, you're just you're looking up, looking for birds. And in this case, it what it, what the canopy wasn't super thick, so okay. you could see the birds flying. Like wow. in, the, in the trees weren't super condensed. Like there, okay. in a way, it wasn't true timber in the sense that like you know tight trees and canopy, but okay. they have to look for the openings. This was a little bit more open, okay. uh, so we could we could see and we could you know call birds from a distance. But there were a lot of birds moving. So um, okay, so you had a lot of ducks coming through there. Yes, large volumes. Yeah, yeah. I remember. Oh, there was. Yeah, it was kind of like it was more like 
you spent the whole morning going, oh, oh there's another one. Like you, like you were moving from one to the next, like right away. There was no like, hey, you want a cup of coffee? It was like. Wow. And yeah. so you guys, you limited out no time. Yeah, we took care wow. of things pretty quick. It was yeah, awesome. That's incredible. Good for you. That's yeah. so cool. Yeah. So you do the calling thing and then you, and then you're kind of done with that. Where do you go from there? You, you start calling your, are you slowing down calling? You're slowing down competing or where I is it? In, in 91, the last time uh, I was still working with my dad. I was, I was down in Southern California at this point going to seminary and I did a show for my dad and I also competed in a contest. I won and I was able to, to qualify. I'm getting my dates. I'm getting old, dude. But I did compete. I think it was '91 that I competed again. In um, so I think I won a. I might have won a contest in Southern California, and then and then so then went back and competed again one more time. And that was pretty much it because at that point I was moving on to I'm going to go plant a church or something. So then okay. it was like I started. Get, I was in you know seminary and right. So I just I just sort of like I'm done with that from a competition right. side. I was still duck hunting, but. And then how did you run into my folks? At okay, what so point? that's a pretty good story too. Like, um, so I met a, a fantastic human being uh, by the name of Gary Shuhama. Do you remember Gary at all? Do you remember that name? I do. Yeah. So he, I ended, I met him my second year of seminary. Okay. And I ended up, he ended up renting a room to me for a year or two while I was in seminary. Okay. And um, so he was the guy that drugged me to the intern program and Bethany and oh, Nick, wow. yeah so I ended up getting he sort of ushered me into meeting your dad because he was running the intern program at Bethany Church in Long Beach and um so it's through Gary that I met your dad and then sort of got to know you wow how funny yep yeah and you never know about that guy because he could be doing something with Gary on a on a like a worker ministry level or you could find out that those two used to run 25 miles a day together, you know, back. Yeah, in exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Your audio dropped again, darn it. Can't hear you. Oh, man. Oh, there you go. You're back. We're back now. I wonder what's going on. Um, I'll tell you what. Why don't we, you want to take five and I'm going to go look at this connection. Yep. Let's do it. Take five. I'll start. Uh, to let's do this. Let's, let's. End an hour right What's that? We're at an hour right now. This is one hour and five minutes. Okay. So you want to, you want to, you want to stop here and then come back. You want to do a little bit more or do you want to. I'm in oh. man. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's let's only. A little bit. Yeah. Let's do it. Let's do another set. Let's go till 10. My time. Go till 10 your time? Yeah. Okay, perfect. All right, let's take a break and then we'll come back and I'll I'll shut this I'm gonna, off. I'm gonna end this. Yeah, you have to click that link again to get back in. Okay, that sounds good. All right, see All you right. in a minute. Okay, friends. The question is, and where we're going with all of this, what's gonna be your legacy? What's going to be my legacy? Who are you going to choose to be? And what people are you going to leave behind? And what are they going to do with what you taught them? Are they going to do good things? Or are they going to do bad things? That's what we're trying to get at. So, it's a question for all of us. Come back next week. We're going to Temple, Texas. Way down south. We're going to have Jason Mitchell on the line. You guys, it's going to be great. Thank you for listening to the Voice of the Pharaoh podcast, and we'll keep a light on for you.